True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Base Podcast with your host, Steve. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to our 28th case together. If you've enjoyed the show so far, please make sure that you have subscribed on your chosen podcast directory and all of the new episodes will automatically download for you. You can also listen to the new episodes through the website too. So go over to www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk and all the episodes are at the base of the home screen. The episodes are also now available on YouTube on the True Crime Fix channel. So please, if you do enjoy the show, spread the word as far as possible. I just want to take this opportunity to welcome Carol W into the True Crime Fix Patreon family. If you want to join, then please come over to www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast. Everyone's support, however much, is greatly appreciated. Okay, So now I've got that out of the way, let's move on to today's case. After the marathon of the last case, it's nice to get back to one which is slightly shorter this week. If I was to quote the line to people of a certain age, I want to be the very best, like no one ever was. I bet that has caused a reaction in you because you know exactly what I'm going to talk about today. For those who don't, I need to give you a little bit of a backstory before starting, and I'll make it as brief as possible. In 1996, Satoshi Tajiri and Ken Sujimori released their series Pokemon into the world, and it became a worldwide phenomenon. The concept of the Pokemon universe in both the video games and the general fictional world of Pokemon stems from the hobby of insect collecting, a popular pastime of Tajiri as a child. There were originally 151 characters, such as Eevee, Snorlax, Bulbasaur, Squirtle, Charmander and the famous Pikachu, which needed to be caught by their trainers, either through the initial games that used to be on the Nintendo Game Boy, or through trading cards which were bought out to accompany the series. As with most series with an almost cult-like following, the earlier merchandise became very valuable and collectors used to trade cards and figures to collect the whole set. As the series even says, got to catch them all. It's the perfect lure for someone unsuspecting to become a victim. So for the first time in this podcast, 
we are taking a trip to the beautiful country of Belgium. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve, and this episode has been written in the memory of Shashia Moreau. Shashia was born on the 1st of July 1996 in Heist-Obdenburg on the outskirts of the Belgian city of Antwerp. Her mother was Diane Versharen and her father was Didier Moreau. Shashia's mother would later meet Gunther Verhagen and he would become Shashia's stepfather. Shashia also had an older brother called Shaquille. Shashia was very health conscious and did not smoke or drink. She was 5 foot 3 inches tall or 160 centimetres with blonde hair. High Stoptenberg is a village 28 miles to the south of the centre of the city of Antwerp and 32 miles north of the capital Brussels. Shashia was also into cosplay. Cosplay for anyone who does not know, is basically a more extreme version of fancy dress, where the person dressing up as a character from pop culture, for example, earlier examples would be Lara Croft from Tomb Raider, or characters from the game Street Fighter, or one of the very original niche cosplayers were from Joss Whedon's Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She made her own costumes from the Japanese anime and manga scene, and took part in conventions where everyone cosplayed. At these conventions, the atmosphere was good-natured and fun. The guests discussed passionately their favourite show or film, comparing the merits of this or that episode of the series or the in-depth character analysis of a game, for example, where you don't feel ashamed of geeking out over a subject. Also, one of the main allures to an event like this would be the ability to purchase rare merchandise and trade for collector cards and figurines. Shashia's mother and stepfather ran the indoor soft play area called Demonte. Demonte was something for the children of the region to do and Shashia met the customers upon arrival and was the main point of contact for the business. One of the things that Shashia enjoyed to do was collect memorabilia from the Pokemon series. On Tuesday the 7th of February 2017, Shashia took a day off from work. She got up and took a shower before she put on her burgundy jeans, mauve Skechers shoes and yellow Cassius Parker style jacket. She picked up her mauve handbag and at around 9am she closed the door behind her of her family home located in High Sopdenburg. She walked briskly to the station because she had a date with a boy who was a similar age as her. Was it a boyfriend she had found on a dating site? No. Was it a romantic date? No. This was a date of necessity, as Shashir had agreed to meet up with another Pokemon collector. The pair had arranged to meet up in the city of Antwerp to swap some rare collectibles. They had agreed a trade online, and she was heading in to Central Antwerp Station to go and collect them. The train journey into Antwerp Station took around half an hour and she arrived ahead of schedule. The weather was bitterly cold on that day 
and she pulled up a zipper of her coat and headed out into the city of Antwerp. She had told her family where she was going so they were not concerned. That was until her father Didier saw a post which had been left on his daughter's Facebook wall the same afternoon. As Shashia's appointment with the collector was not due to last that long, she'd also agreed that she would spend the afternoon with a friend who was waiting for her in the concourse of the station. When she didn't show up, he tried calling her several times on her mobile phone, but received no answer. Later in the day, he sent her a Facebook message in which he would say, I'm disappointed that you put a rabbit on me. I waited for you and you did not even come. Just as a quick reference, although you've probably guessed, Posa un lapin, which is a literal translation to English, is to set a rabbit down, coming from a 19th century French phrase, which was used when someone did not keep an appointment or pay for something. It was strange though, Didier thought. It wasn't like his daughter not to be punctual, let alone stand someone up. Didier knew how excited Shashir was about this meeting, as she had been promised items that she had been looking for for ages. So why had she not met up with her friend after this meeting? He tried calling her mobile phone ten times, but each time her phone would go straight through to voicemail. He was starting to feel very uneasy, so he decided to call around all of her close family and her other friends to see if they'd heard from her, but no one had seen or heard from her all day. Late in the afternoon, Didier decided to go to the local police station at High Stoptonburg to report his daughter missing. The police immediately took the report seriously and sent a description of Shashir to all their mobilised units as well as those in central Antwerp. They also started posting her information on all of their social networking sites to see if anybody had seen her. As the day drew to a close, there had still been no confirmed sightings of Shashir. The wait was unbearable for the family, but the police did suggest that as she was 20, she may have been visiting someone else as an emergency. When Shashir did not turn up for work the following day, however, their fears were confirmed. Shashir Moreau was now officially a missing person. The first thing that the police had to do was track down the collector who she was due to meet, and all they had was John V. John V was John Vandenbroek, and he lived at 52 Van Stralenstraat in the centre of Antwerp. He was also in his 20s and he was at home when the police went to find him. He confirmed with the police that Shashir had never arrived at his house as they had agreed and took out his phone to show them a text message which was sent from her phone at around 9.50am saying that she was sorry but she was not coming. He then said that he had gone to work. Police went to the branch of McDonald's where John Vandenbroek worked and checked his schedule and he had indeed worked that day from late morning as scheduled. The police were back to square one. Where had Shashir gone? The police had a breakthrough though at Antwerp train station. 
CCTV had picked up Shashia arriving at Antwerp station, getting off the train and coming through the main ticket hall and turning into Van Stralenstrat. The CCTV then lost her as she headed in the direction of John Vanderbroek's house. The police now had to work out if Shashia had been abducted in broad daylight in the 550 metres between the entrance of the train station and his house, or was John lying? Whilst the police were investigating other options, Shashia's brother Shaquille posted numerous messages on Facebook encouraging people to keep looking for her and share posts looking for her. On one of his posts on the 8th of February, John Vandenbroek commented saying that he felt guilty for her going missing as it was because of him arranging to meet her in central Antwerp. Shaquille, in turn, told John not to worry and ensured him that no one in his family held it against him. Didier was also trying to get the hunt for Shashir in most news agencies by doing numerous interviews, passing on the information that was known. Other family members continuously called Shashir on her mobile phone, hoping that someone would answer the call, whether it be Shashir or someone holding her for ransom. Of course though, the evidence was starting to point towards Vandenbroek not telling the entire truth. By Thursday the 11th of February, the detectives had decided that they had enough to arrest him. At just before 5pm, they arrived at his house. When the police turned up at his house, Vandenbroek was clearly uncomfortable. The police now had the court's permission that they required to search his home. So whilst the police were interviewing him at the local police station, the investigation team started examining the apartment. This was where the police found the evidence that they were looking for. There was the smallest of reddish-brown stains on the living room carpet. The interview at the police station was also starting to produce new information as Vandenbroek, who started the interview repeating what he had said about Shashir having stood him up, finally admitted that Shashir had arrived at his house and completed the trade, but then left, but he said that he was afraid that if he had said that, the police would then consider him a suspect. The analysis had come back on the carpet stain, however, and not only was it confirming that the stain was blood, but the blood matched a sample of DNA which had been given to the police by Shashia's family. When confronted with this information, Vandenbroek decided not to answer any more questions. When the police then decided to send their forensic technicians to Van Stralenstrat, their closer examinations discovered other spots of blood, Many more, in fact. I know that most people who listen to this show would know this, but I'm going to explain it anyway for those who are unaware. Forensic investigators use luminol to detect trace amounts of blood at crime scenes as it reacts with the iron in the haemoglobin. When luminol is sprayed evenly across an area, 
trace amounts of any activating oxidant make the luminol emit a blue glow that can be seen in a darkened room. The glow only lasts about 30 seconds, but investigators can document the effect with a long exposure photograph. The luminol which had been sprayed at Vandenbroek's flat revealed that intensive cleaning had taken place. But it had been useless. There was blood everywhere, from floor to ceiling, on the walls, on the furniture. The police were starting to ask themselves what had exactly happened here. Vandenbroek was brought back to the flat from the police station, but again he maintained a stubborn silence. It was then that one of the investigators just casually looked out of the window, spotted a communal garden behind the building with a strip of freshly turned earth. Having been to many Belgian cities myself, a lot of the properties in the city are townhouses built into blocks and it's not always obvious what belongs to what property without prior knowledge of the layout. The forensic team's attention then turned to the outside. With it being February, the light started to fade early, so floodlights were needed by the investigators who commenced the excavation. And at 10.30pm, a shovel made contact with an object that the police, deep down, had not wanted to find. A body. The body that they had unearthed was that of a young woman with long brownish looking hair. She had been stripped naked and it was clear, even though that the body was covered in dirt, it was clear that the person had suffered an horrific beating to the extent that she was unrecognisable. And that's evident, and I did this deliberately, because Shashir's description was the fact that she had blonde hair. When she'd been found, because of the dirt and the matted blood, the police believed that the body had brown hair. In the early hours of Friday the 12th, Shashir's parents were notified that the police believed that they had found their daughter, and they were asked to go to the mortuary to formally identify Shashir. It was an horrific detail for the family, because, as expected, it was Shashir. The initial post-mortem revealed that she had been raped, beaten up and strangled. This girl, who had been described as so sweet, so cheerful, introverted and never saw the bad in anyone in good faith. She had attended the appointment with someone she suspected to be a harmless collector of Pokemon memorabilia like she was, but she had actually fell into the clutches of a predator who would prepared everything with the thoroughness of a professional killer. Back at the police station, Vandenbroek claimed to remember nothing, but the evidence against him was starting to mount. The initial autopsy showed that there were traces of semen on her body, and everything was starting to indicate that this was not just a crime of opportunity, he had lured Shashir into a premeditated ambush. He had done this in two stages. 
Firstly, he had baited Shashir with the promise of a rare Pokemon to exchange, knowing that she could not resist the invite. Then, once the crime had been committed, he made an alibi by pretending that Shashir had not come, sending a text from her phone before pretending to be worried, and worst of all, sympathised with the family of the person that he had just raped and murdered. When his arrest was announced in the media, several other girls in their late teens and early twenties came forward to tell how Vandenbroek had tried to lure them into his home in exchange for Pokemon. He was a member of a group on Facebook which had collectors of Pokemon cards and figurines from all over the country and this was where he was setting his trap for his unsuspecting victims. Responses to the social media site showed that he had approached other women. He also asked me to come over for Pokemon, so this could have been me, a friend of Shashia wrote on Facebook. Another girl hinted that Vandenbroek suggested that she have sex with him in exchange for 500 euros. In the end, it appeared as though he'd approached at least six other young women through the Facebook page about Pokemon. My housemate, a friend and I, regularly received strange messages, one user stated. Then he would ask for a hug, or would you like to come by? He sometimes offered the women money in exchange for sexual acts. The burden of proof against him was overwhelming. There were the CCTV images of Shashir heading towards his apartment. There were the DNA traces on Shashir's body. The blood traces in the apartment. The text messages that were sent from her phone after she had arrived in Antwerp. The messages sent to other users on the Facebook group. Then, obviously, there was the fact that her body had been found in his garden. John Vandenbroek was charged with the murder of Shashir on the 12th of February and appeared in court for the first time in front of the Correctional Tribunal. As with the Thai case, I'm just going to briefly explain the Belgian judicial system. The police tribunal is the first stage and acts in a very similar way to the British magistrate court system. The next court is the Court of Assizes, The Court of Assizes is the highest criminal court and is the only court that can hold jury trials in the Belgian judicial system. They are comprised of three judges, from the Courts of Appeal, the Tribunals and the First Instance Court, and a jury of 12 jurors. Only the jury acts as the trier of fact, and together with the three judges, the penalty is determined. Suspects cannot be tried by a court of assizes without a prior indictment by the Chamber of Indictment of the Court of Appeal. The Court of Cassation, or the Palais de Justice, is the main court of last resort, or the Supreme Court in Belgium. At the hearing, the lawyer of John Vandenbroek asked the council chamber in Antwerp to postpone the case. We need more time to go through the file and discuss it with our client, said Ilse Boist, 
who acts with Liliane Vergel. His lawyer stated, John Vandenbroek has been questioned twice about the facts. He maintains his position that he blacked out about the meeting with Shashir. He doesn't remember anything. He was recently interviewed for a whole day, but only about his difficult childhood, his upbringing with his grandmother and his activities as a young adult. In a normal investigation in Belgium, this is the third part of the interrogation and forms part of the morality study or a look into his mental health and that is the final phase in the murder investigation. Investigators then question Vandenbroek's family and friends about how they experienced him at home and whether they had any concerns. John Vandenbroek was born on the 22nd of October 1991 in Antwerp. He lost his father as a toddler due to a drug overdose and his half-sister due to suicide, so his early life was not great. But it was the testimony of his grandmother Rachel which was crucial in order to charge him. In the months between his arraignment and the trial, a peek into the real man that Vandenbroek was came out. Rachel ended up raising John and his older brother from childhood. She said, John gives the impression that he is a poor lamb, that he had a sad childhood. He blames me for raising him with a hard hand. Then why did he stay with me until he was 24? I don't fall for those liars. I've always done everything for him. The first days after his arrest, I was in doubt, but after six months, I'm sure that John killed that beautiful girl. I think it's terrible for that family. His family was also questioned about Vandenbroek's preference for sadomasochistic sex. For those of you who don't have a great deal of knowledge of this term, it is a sexual act where one person enjoys inflicting physical or mental suffering on another person who derives pleasure from experiencing the pain. The gratification, especially sexual, gained through inflicting or receiving pain is sadism and masochism combined. When the investigation was conducted, it was learned that Vandenbroek actually locked up one of his former girlfriends in a dog cage. He had strange traits, said his grandma Rachel. After his arrest, a special rope, handcuffs and other attributes from the sex shop were found in his room. There was also wigs, women's clothing and jewellery. I only learned about this afterwards. As mentioned briefly earlier, John Vandenbroek tried to lure another woman into his apartment before Shashia's murder. He also offered them money in exchange for sex. His lawyer, Vajal, said, Even if our client had certain sexual preferences, it would not make him a murderer. His former girlfriends only speak positively about him. The trial began on Tuesday the 15th of October 2019 at Antwerp Assizes Court with the jury selection. 
The judge, or the chairman of the court, was Dirk Thois, and he presided over this process before the trial started in earnest on the 18th of October. The first day saw Vandenbroek break his claim he had upheld for the past two years, in which he stated he did not remember how Shashir died. Now he admitted in court that he had strangled her during sex, an encounter which he claimed was consensual. He claimed she looked at his collection of Pokemon figurines and she had done so with admiration, and he had seen this as a sign, so he put one of his hands on her buttocks. They then had mutually consensual sex. Apart from Vandenbroek himself, not many people in the court believed this explanation. Prosecutor Bjorn Bax did not. As the initial testimony had happened on the Friday, he ordered his team over the weekend to come up with a strategy to interrogate the accused, saying it's only a matter of confronting him with some of the awkward elements of this case. So when the court returned on Monday, this was one of the exchanges between the prosecutors and Vandenbroek. Lawyer Walter Damon Just a question on the chronology. How did you say the sex went exactly? When did the sex change? Vandenbroek Within the first five minutes, it became rough sex, and then after a further three to five minutes, there was strangulation. Walter Damon And how did it go from one to the other? Vandenbroek That just happened. The prosecutor then chimed in. Did she not resist? Vandenbroek No, not that I noticed. The prosecutor Bjorn Bax Did you not see her face turn red? Vandenbroek I had my eyes closed. Bjorn Bax When did you notice that she was no longer moving? Vandenbroek Only after I'd finished. Bjorn Bax We will ask the pathologist if this is possible. How many times have you had sex like this? Vandenbroek Between two and ten times. Walter Damon A month before Shashia died you chatted with a friend about a stranger dying during sex. Vandenbroek That was to gain inspiration for writing and drawing hentai. Walter Damon I don't understand what this means. Vandenbroek Then search the internet, sir. It was then described in court what hentai was. A short description being it's the pornographic version of Japanese anime and manga, which the artist fulfills fantasies through the characters. Walter Damon then continued. I quote from another chat conversation. I want to do it super extremely with her, until we are at the point of no return. Until she will die. Was that also to get inspiration? Vandenbroek, indeed, same context. Walter Damon If you drew and wrote so much, why didn't the detectives find anything back at your home? 
Vanden broke. I did it at a cafe. Shashir's family lawyer, Frederick Tibble, then addressed Vandenbroek. As I am directly quoting here, for your reference, a Manon in Flemish refers to a very beautiful French girl who captures all the boy's attention. She is very quirky, often interested in things outside of the mainstream, but caring and a great friend who would never hurt anyone. She has a hard time trusting people, especially males, and appreciates everyone she knows, but still gets hurt a lot. It's more of an urban term, which is why I wonder why a solicitor would have used it, but nevertheless. Frederick Tibble asked, In the same period, at the end of January 2017, you also chat with a man on via direct messaging and it can be deduced from these conversations that you also wanted to meet her at your home to view Pokemon figures. Was that also for rough strangle sex? Vandenbroek, I cannot make any statements about that. Frederick Tibble, on February the 7th, a few hours after the death of Shashia, you contact that man on again via direct messaging, saying, How is it? Why? Vandenbroek, no idea. Vandenbroek said that Shashia had been initially surprised at his advances, but later engaged sexually with him. Additional surveillance camera footage found after the initial investigation dated the 7th of February 2017, showed the pair meeting at Antwerp Central Station and making their way to Vandenbroek's apartment, which they reached at around 9.41am. Then, Vandenbroek set about creating his alibi. The first messages, which were sent between 10.02 and 10.14am, about not being able to attend, were then followed by messages sent out by him to Shashia's friend using her Facebook account, stating that she had chosen not to show up to their planned arrangement. Surveillance footage from the subsequent hours showed that Vandenbroek left his apartment to buy a shovel and was wearing a different sweatshirt than when he met up with Shashia. Vandenbroek said that he did not have the intention of killing Shashia, saying that he panicked when he noticed that she was no longer breathing. I realised that I had to get rid of her. I bought a shovel and dug a hole in the garden, adding that when he realised it wasn't deep enough, he opted to tie her legs and arms so that she would fit in. He said that he was trying to fool himself and that he had made the wrong decision when he chose to conceal the crime and Shashir's body. During the trial, the investigators also showed video clips of the interrogation with Vandenbroek, which everyone in the courtroom was watching with open mouths. Vandenbroek. It has all become blank in my head. The detective. Can you really remember nothing? Vandenbroek now has his head in his hands. Maybe... 
No, I'm hoping I did not do anything. There's a chance that I did, but I hope not. Detective. We have found human blood. Vandenbroke. Oh no, I did something. Detective. Do you sometimes work in the garden? Vandenbroke. No, never. The detective. You know what the following question is. Vandenbroke. Has she been found in the garden? Detective. A girl has been found in the garden. Vandenbroke began to sob loudly and then screamed, Oh no! At the end of the footage, Frederick Tibble asked, Were those real tears, Mr. Vandenbroke? He replied, Yes, I was very sorry about what I did. Frederick Tibble, Why didn't you think of her parents then? And you hid behind your memory loss. Vandenbroke, It was indeed a very hard fight between thinking of them and my own interests. After nearly two years of silence, the family were finally hearing what had happened in the last hours before her death. Next, using a doll, he showed how he had put his hands around Shashia's neck and squeezed. I did not have the impression that she was in distress. I had my eyes closed whilst we were having sex, he said. It is possible that my hands moved a little bit. A doll like this does not move, of course, he added. A member of the jury became unwell following the reenactment, so the trial was suspended for a while. When it returned, according to the medical examiner, Shashia had died from strangulation. Whether this happened by hand or with something else, I cannot deduce, said the examiner. The defendant had used his hands, but he also owned a special band for controlled strangulation during sex, according to an ex-girlfriend who testified. A working theory was that he had used that and threw it away afterwards. The difference with Belgian trials compared to many other countries is that the jury can ask procedural questions to witnesses during the trial. In response to a question from a juror, the medical examiner also stated that there was an injury to Shashia's leg that could mean that force had been used to hold open her thighs, meaning that the sex might not have been voluntary, like Vandenbroek said it was. Due to delays in the case, for example the jury member falling ill, it appeared as though the trial was going to go longer than scheduled. According to the schedule, the trial should have ended on Friday the 28th of October in the evening. Chairman Dirk Thois warned the jury on the Tuesday that it would probably end when scheduled. However, the unavoidable delays meant that it could go long. This was a problem for two of the 12-member jury. They had planned to go on holiday during the autumn school holidays, which started the following week. Fortunately, however, the trial did not overrun, and the jury came to the decision on the Friday. They found John Vandenbroek guilty of murder. The following Monday, the Antwerp Eisenhof, or courthouse, sentenced him to life imprisonment 
and 15 years extra at the custodial court. That is the most serious punishment available to the Belgian court system. Vandenbroek will remain in prison until he is at least 65 years old. In his personal statement to the court, even John Vandenbroek welcomed his sentence and said that he wants to go into therapy in prison. Vandenbroek did not have a message for Shashia's parents though. He again offered his regret in an emotionless tone. The psychiatrists had branded him a narcissistic psychopath. Whatever punishment I get, I want to be helped with my personality disorder so that I come out better afterwards, he said. In its judgement, the jury acknowledged that Vandenbroek had had a far from ideal childhood, as his lawyer had argued. But that should not count as a mitigating circumstance. The home situation may have influenced his personality, but it was not a decisive factor. Also, despite his previously spotless criminal record, he received the most severe punishment. The punishment which had been handed down to Vandenbroek was more severe than that which had been handed to infamous Belgian criminal Marc Dutroux. Marc Dutroux was a convicted child molester and murderer. He was convicted in 1989 of the abduction and rape of five young girls. Vandenbroek had been in prison on remand since the 9th of February 2017, two days after the murder of Shashia. In the two and a half years that he was in custody, Vandenbroek had spent €6,000 or just over $7,000 on sweets, films and porn magazines. The idea that someone who is in prison on suspicion of a sexually aggravated murder has access to pornography absolutely baffles me. The parents of Shashia responded to the conviction with satisfaction. Finally justice, Shashia's mother Diane said outside a court. If you see him sitting there so numb, the question wasn't why had he killed someone, but when was he going to kill someone? We just had the misfortune that it was our daughter. I hope he will never be released again. It is a disappointment that he did not tell us the truth. They were lies. That was not Shashia. It also did not correspond with all that we had read in the file. Our hope to find out what really happened here has now gone. We hoped that he would break during the trial and tell the truth. Shashia never got her name dragged through the mud here and we are very happy about that. Before, in the media, she had sometimes been portrayed as naive. Why would she go and visit an unknown guy? Or maybe also stupid because of those Pokemon. But here, on the trial, it turned out that this was not the case. She was not like that. It was never said here. Her death is his fault. This could have happened to everyone's daughter. It is very important that he also received the maximum sentence, important for other girls so that he could not do this again.
I knew we could never count on the truth, said Shashir's father, Didier Moreau. What if he suddenly discovered a new story in five years? As if we can believe him then. Society has lost a perverse, sadistic psychopath, said Didier, who attended every day of the trial. I feel exhausted, he continued. I've heard my daughter die 30 times. Every time a witness came to talk about Shashir, I felt the pain. I went outside three times during the plea for leniency from his lawyers. I am very satisfied. I immediately called my son Shaquille. As soon as I heard that the jury were not going to take into account mitigating circumstances, I informed him that it would be okay. Even before they had spoken the word of life. Shaquille, the older brother of Shashir, suffered heavily after the death of his sister. So badly that he could not even come and testify at the Assizes process. What I feel goes beyond anger, he wrote in a letter read out at the trial. He couldn't help but avoid Antwerp, the city that had taken his sister from him. Diane stated, It was very important to him to know that the killer was being severely punished. The heaviest possible punishment, heavier than Mark de Troyes. I am glad I can tell my son later that his sister's killer will be in jail for a long time. In the subsequent aftermath, Shashir's mother and stepfather could not continue their business. They found a new manager for the De Monte Indoor Play School in Bergenstrat. The couple found it emotionally too hard to continue to run the business, which was going to be inherited by Shashir. Stefan Jacobs bought the business from them. Diane and I have always combined the indoor playground with another job. De Monte was something for the kids. Shashir received the customers and was a point of contact for the business. She would later become the owner along with the other children. It turned out completely different, said Gunter. Now that Shashir is no longer here, the other two children find it emotionally too hard to continue with De Monte. Knowing the history of the logo and the fact that it had been designed by Shashir, the new owner decided to keep it, even if he decided to change the colours at a later date. We are very happy that we can close the De Monte chapter and have faith in Stefan. For us, it is surplus that he wants to keep the Tashia logo. Although, as a new owner, he can of course do what he wants to do, said Gunter. A young girl who had everything to live for fell foul of a nasty sexual predator. All for the love of a series which is supposed to be so innocent. So that's it for this week. Please remember if you've enjoyed the show or want to know more, Please follow us on Twitter at True Crime Fix Pod. That's at True Crime Fix Pod on Twitter. The podcast also has a Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast, but there's also a fan page, True Crime Fix Discussion. I'm thoroughly enjoying interacting with everyone on there, and this is where I post the majority of the information on the week's cases. You can also visit the website 
www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk Also a reminder about the podcast being on Patreon, so please visit www.patreon.com forward slash truecrimefixpodcast I also have an Instagram account, so please search True Crime Fix. Also, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please feel free to contact me through the Contact Us part of the website and an email will come directly to me. Until next time, stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest, because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone.